is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we hear about the Hunter Haydrop, some uh, people that are in pretty desperate straits up there. We uh, cross to uh, those uh, people in the drought-affected region of Merry War shortly, but... Uh, also, the green light should be given to aerial culling of feral horses in the Australian Alps. That's according to a Senate inquiry that was uh, released its findings on Friday. They say if we don't do that, then threatened species will be lost forever. Yes, the, the you know, eight-month inquiry took um, submissions and then held committee hearings and heard that in order to protect the Alpine National Parks, the New South Wales government needs to allow aerial culling of horses, given how they've allowed the horse populations to build up over time. All that and a whole lot more coming up. You can always send us a text. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up, uh, let's get some fire information. ABC Radio Emergency Information. And the latest on that is that the watch and act advice for that grass fire that's burning at Upper Horseshoe Creek, about 20 kilometres north of Kyogle, has been downgraded to advice level only as that fire is being controlled. Firefighters are liaising with residents in the area of Horseshoe Creek and Sergeant's Road. Uh, so the latest on that, uh, watch and act advice for the grass fire burning at Upper Horseshoe Creek, about 20 kilometres north of Kyogle, uh, has been downgraded to advice level only. That fire is being controlled. There is a reminder, though, that there are total fire bans in place for seven regions across New South Wales today. The regions are the Greater Hunter, North Coast, Far North Coast, New England, Northern Slopes, northwestern and upper central west plains covering 40 local government areas Uh, a total fire ban means that no fires are allowed out in the open it's 17 minutes past uh it's seven minutes past 12 here (laughs) getting ahead of myself there on the country hour and that's the latest uh if information on the fires at watch and act advice now if there's any change to that we'll bring it to you during the program so stay listening to your local abc but uh, to horses now in the national parks and the green light uh, should be given to aerial culling of feral horses in the Australian Alps. That's according to a Senate inquiry. ACT Independent Senator David Pocock, who instigated the inquiry with the support of the government and the Greens, said that the final report documented compelling evidence of the catastrophic impacts of feral horses that they're having on threatened species, waterways and ecosystems. And he says that uh, the move to aerial culling seems like the most logical choice? Yes, the, the you know, eight-month inquiry took um, submissions and then held committee hearings and heard that in order to protect the Alpine National Parks, the New South Wales government needs to allow aerial culling of horses, given how they've allowed the horse populations to build up over time. And also, federal government should take more control of it as well. That was in the report too. How is that going to work? Under our national environmental laws, the federal government has a really important role to play. And what we heard uh, during the committee process was that there are at least 12 uh, threatened species that will likely go extinct if horses aren't dealt with. And so the committee uh, recommended that feral horses be listed as a threatening process. And then they developed a threat abatement plan for feral horses to ensure that we can deal with them in these really sensitive 
uh, ecosystems in the high country. And you think the number is around that 20,000 mark? There's a range um, because of the way that, that they, they count, but there's a fairly high level of certainty that it's, it's around the 18,000. The number that, that sort of had a, a high degree of agreement was around the 18,000 mark. There's obviously a range because of the way that surveys are done, but what we do know is that horses are having a huge impact in Kosciuszko National Park. And New South Wales government having laws that doesn't allow for them to deal with feral horses means that Victoria and ACT are having horses coming across the border. And you think that uh, the New South Wales legislation isn't fit for purpose and should be repealed? The committee recommended that the New South Wales government allow aerial culling. Um, They found it to be one of the the most humane and most cost-effective ways to manage uh, feral horses. They've obviously got legislation that prohibits that. So the ball is really in New South Wales court now to deal with this urgent issue. You know, horses are beautiful animals, but they don't just, they, they shouldn't be in our national parks. There's species that have nowhere else to go. There's plenty of land for horses outside of our national parks. Well, this is the save, the save that our Brumbies group is saying that uh, we shouldn't use aerial shooting. We should rehome them and use, you know, um, chemical uh, control to uh, you know, a popula- chemical population control. What's what was the committee's response to that? We we heard so much evidence that the current rate of of offtake through rehoming is not feasible. There simply aren't enough people willing to take horses. It's slow. And it's very expensive. And so we, we have to ensure that we're putting the ecological health of these um, areas ahead of uh, an introduced species. You know, 30% of the water in the Murray-Darling um, Basin comes from uh, the high country, comes from these ecosystems. We've got to be looking after them. You've got some support from the Prime Minister. He was saying he doesn't want to see any extension of any any uh, any of the uh, you know uh, endangered uh, species I- into the future, and also Tanya Plibersek saying she was she welcomed the report, but does, is that going to translate into action? Do you think the need for action is is urgent? We heard that there's there's twelve threatened species that are very likely to go extinct if we don't deal with this issue of feral horses in national parks. Things like the iconic Corroboree frog are hanging on by a thread. We have to ensure that we are protecting these areas for the native wildlife, um, the, the native uh, plant species to thrive. The ball back into the court for New South Wales on their legislation, national, you know, uh, getting a, a national plan up and running. You know, some of this will take some time, and as you say, it's urgent. It, it is urgent. We, we need the New South Wales government to act. You know, this issue is is emotional people have strong feelings towards horses we know that you know 260,000 animals were culled from the air in New South Wales over the last three years this is used for a whole bunch of other species and at the moment we're, we're putting uh, an introduced species ahead of the health of you know incredibly unique and under threat ecosystems and species and and we should be putting the health of these areas and the water that that they provide uh, to the environment to towns to farmers ahead of an introduced species that that will survive outside our national parks so who's going to pay for it with federal money 
I've recommended that the the federal government step up and provide more fundings to the to, to all jurisdictions who are involved in this. The uh, former government uh, put about 1.5 million dollars into feral horse management. The new government has only put $200,000 into it. So I'd like to see them step up and work with uh, Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT on, on, on tackling the issue of feral horses and, and their impact on our incredible um, environment in, in the high country. And is getting the number down to 3,000 horses in the park enough? I, I don't think national parks are a place to protect an introduced species. I think the ecological health of those areas and preserving and protecting our incredible biodiversity should come first. There's a long way to go to get to 3,000, and it's going to take a big effort and a, and a real step up from the New South Wales government. Uh, so that's a that's a start. I know there's, there's differing views on this, but you know, heading heading in that direction is the first step. There seems to be some willingness from Penny Sharp though to make some changes. We've got federal and state governments that have ambitious targets when it comes to halting extinctions. And we know that feral horses will likely cause the extinction of at least 12 threatened species. So we need to act. We need to step up. We, we can't allow these species to go extinct on our watch. And if you look at the way that climate change is changing these really fragile ecosystems, we have to ensure that we're allowing them to be as resilient as possible to face the future. Well, uh, El Nino might also cause some of these horses in the National Park to starve. I mean, that's not exactly humane, is it? Well, th- this was the other the other side of the, the argument around the humane treatment, is, is we know during droughts we see, and even, in, even through bad winters, we see big die-offs of, of horses, and, and that's an incredibly inhumane way for, for animals to suffer and die. And... Again, we heard from so many experts saying that well-managed aerial shooting is a humane, effective um, and and cost-effective way of dealing with introduced pests. That's the ACT Independent Senator David Pocock. It's coming up to 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Aussie hay runners have answered the SOS call of alarm farmers in the Upper Hunter Shire in New South Wales. With the rapid return of drought conditions in that region, they're still feeling the effects of devastating bushfires and the drought of not that long ago. Well, the hay runners are sending, have sent in about 34 loaded trucks, and uh, that's as a result of some generous backing from supporters, mainly from Victoria and now New South Wales Rural Assistance Authority, the Hayfield Lions Club, uh, the Denman's Lion Club, and an amazing team of volunteers all came on board to make that project happen. Amelia Bonus Bernasconi spoke to Christine Brooker at Rukal about how bad their season has been. It's overwhelming, uh, Millie, for um, a community from Victoria mm. to give hay to the Upper Hunter. And it's a great thanks to Aberdeen Lions and Denman Lions for contacting or me personally to mm. see if we could distribute the hay. So it's just phenomenal. When someone's having a good time, unfortunately someone else is having a not so good time and um, we're in that camp at the minute. Take us up to your place. Can you paint the picture of what it's been like 
are we coming up on a year now since a decent rain event? We haven't had any rain since November, or mm. decent rain since mm. November. We had uh, water running out of dams in November, and now those dams are dry. I've actually got a bulldozer cleaning them out at the moment. So, um, yes, personally we're feeding uh, about 250 cows and calves plus other stock. So we do it in two runs um, daily. Mm. So, yeah, big days. My family are all together in this. We Mum opens the gates and makes sure that we're fine yeah. because the cows are mm. running to the feeders and you're trying to feed cattle. Mm. My brother and my sister help too, so we're just one big family trying yeah. to get it done. Do you think it's better this time round? I know we always talk about having these conversations, getting it off your chest. Do you think people are, yeah, maybe being more open and honest with how they're going? I think so, yeah. very much so. And you've got to do that because mm. we've just gone through um, a drought not that far yeah. since and it's very cruel, but we're back into it again. Mm. Wally Martin is a Meriwar farmer who received some of that donated hay over the weekend. I spoke to him a short time ago about just how dry it's been at his place. No, it's been it's been crook. It's um, almost as bad as what it was, you know, um, three years ago um, in that drought. And uh, we're, we're feeding virtually everything here. And a uh, few weathers aren't getting a lot of feed, but um, everything else, like is, um, the trouble is they've got lambs and they've got calves you know and a bit too young to wean and uh, we are we are feeding pretty full on so the hay was pretty welcome the hay was very welcome it's it's an outstanding effort um you know to help help us out i'm incredibly grateful for it yes and all the way from victorian farmers so obviously and you know obviously thinking about you know helping their mates out in the tougher times which which is great Yes, it is. Yes, I really envy them for getting a, a good, better season down there. <laughs> it, um, it's a great effort, and uh, I'm really, uh, really grateful for the, for it. Uh, yeah. And when when did it stop raining at your place? No, end of November. Up until the end of November last year, we we were doing flood fences every fortnight. It's just completely. At the end of November, it stopped raining, and. The best fall we've had since it was a 22 mil. I mean, the big, the biggest fall. We've had small falls of five, you know, up to 10 mil, um, which basically uh, does nothing. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, yeah, old Huey's just pulled the pin again. You know, how does that compare to your normal season? Normal seasons, we well, we normally we can guarantee on floods January, February, but. Um, We've we've only had less than half our average annual rainfall for this year so far, and um, you know when you consider that we had um, you know two and a half years of, of very good rainfall above average rainfall, and then all of a sudden it just stopped like this. It's uh, there's no no groundwater reserves underneath you know no subsoil moisture at all. You know it's little and no growth. At, at least now if we do get rain, it will grow because the ground temperatures warmed up a bit, but. We've got, we've got to have rain for that to happen. Yeah, that's right. Hard to grow anything without any rain. Do you have any cropping at all or are you mainly grazing? No, mainly grazing. Um, I do put a bit of pasture, try and scratch a bit of pasture in sometimes, but yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a big cost if it doesn't rain. And yours wouldn't be the only tail like this in the area, I gather? Oh, no. Oh, the, the, the Upper Hunter was one of the first to, to really deteriorate. Um, well, I know we're drought declared now, obviously, but... Um, 
it yeah it was one of the first areas to really deteriorate and and now over the Liverpool Plains, um, which you know I'm right on the edge of, um, it's um, it's getting very ordinary there too. You know. Yeah, so I understand. And they're talking about another hay drop in November, maybe. Yes, I did hear that, and um, you know, but, uh, it, it it would be very welcome again if 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 possible. Yes, but, um, we'll, we'll certainly put our hand up if we if we're able, but. Um, any help is appreciated. And you don't want to sell them all off or it's, the prices are so crappy? Well, the, the trouble is, with, with, the, with the cheap job, mutton's just collapsed. Mm. Um, you know, if it wasn't for the wool on their backs, you wouldn't have sheep at the moment. It's nearly impossible to get rid of store sheep now, like sheep that aren't fat. Uh, you can still sell fat sheep for a reduced price. And, of course, cattle are sort of held up a little bit, but they, yeah, they've gone back. And until we get good good rainfall like i can't see it improving the market price for cattle or sheep the forecast doesn't look great either no uh, the only way i can get to sleep for the night is knowing that sometimes those fellas are wrong <laughs> that's Wally Martin there, who's a Merriwa farmer. He's still got his sense of humour, though. And uh, talking about the Bureau, uh, uh, Dave at Trundles texted in saying he wants me to put the squeeze on the bomb for more rain. He says Dave at Trundles only had 20 millimetres for October so far. Uh, he says uh, it's very dry and windy at Trundle at the moment, uh, which it is because uh, we drove uh, not far away from Trundle when we were heading out to Condobin. It's uh, coming up to 22 minutes past 12. Pretty dry out at Condobin, let me tell you. Uh, 22 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. And uh, getting a few other texts too about uh, the feed issue and the donated hay. Uh, and uh, someone's texted in saying, thank God for the need for feed for Blaze Aid, the CWA, um, also uh, RFS, and they're saying, why is it that local land services have zero assistance for burnt-out landholders and no emergency stop fodder or emergency assistance uh, with that lost fen- fencing to prevent disaster and the uh, displaced stock as well? So, uh, yeah, some uh, some comments there about uh, the uh, donation, uh, the feed donation and... Um, uh, more should be done, they're saying, by some of those government agencies. It's 23 minutes past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, let's go to court now. And it's been six weeks uh, into the court case looking at the class action involving 800 Australians alleging exposure to one of the world's most popular agricultural chemicals and weed killers, saying it's carcinogenic. While the case is being heard in the federal court in Melbourne, the product continues to be sold in Australia and Monsanto's parent company Bayer insists that Roundup is safe. The nine-week trial will hear from expert witnesses about whether glyphosate, a broad-spectrum herbicide, which is a key ingredient in Roundup, uh, whether or not it can cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Our reporter Lucy Cooper has been watching the case and she's been speaking about it to Ali Felton-Taylor. It's an absolute mammoth of an event. It's all being held at the federal court in Melbourne And I say mammoth because we've got over 800 Australians who are involved in this class action. So this trial has heard from expert witnesses and it's essentially, it's two-pronged. So it's looking at first whether glyphosate, a broad spectrum herbicide, is carcinogenic to humans and can cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So if that is then accepted 
by the court. It will then move on to the second question, which is whether the manufacturers, uh, Monsanto, were negligent regarding the risks posed by its products. So it's judge only. So we've got Justice Michael Lee, a federal court judge who's overseeing all of this. And then we've got the two sides. So we've got Morris Blackburn, the company has that's the company that's brought on this class action against Monsanto. And they're running this on a no-win, no-fee basis. So you could be a complainant, one of those 800 complainants, and right now you don't have any fees um, if it if it doesn't win. So that's how they're operating. And they've uh, enlisted barrister Andrew Clements KC. He's acting for uh, Morris Blackburn, and he is representing Kelvin McNichol. Now, Mr. McNichol, he's the lead applicant. So that means that his case is what everyone is looking at. And that is the case that will determine the outcome for the other 800 people. Because as we can understand, sitting through 800 people's testimonies would take an extremely long time. So this is usually how class actions work, where you just have one lead applicant. And I mean, it's worth noting, he's 40 years old. He's diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 2018. He went into remission the following year, but it was revealed at the start of the trial that he was diagnosed with cancer only six weeks before this trial began. So he's not attended that initial hearing and other hearings as well because he is receiving treatment for his cancer. So that's that complainant side. Then the other side is Monsanto. So Monsanto developed Roundup. They're owned by a massive you know, chemical giant and pharmaceutical giant in Bayer. And they've enlisted barrister Stephen Finch, who is representing them. So on to the lead arguments. What have we heard so far? So I think, you know, Mr McNichol's situation is the fact that he worked for his family's vegetation management business, spraying weeds on the side of highways and so on and so forth for effectively like every day for 20 years, he says. And so... He said during this time he was exposed to Roundup products and also throughout his childhood he also helped his father kill weeds on their property in New South Wales. So he's had quite a long period of exposure to the product and he alleges that he had direct contact. So it dripped or leaked onto his skin and clothes and also, you know, through through mist as well, went into his eyes. Uh, And so that's his situation. That's what the case is based on. And so We've got the two arguments, which is for him is arguing that glyphosate and Roundup were carcinogenic to humans and could cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma through a number of ways. Whereas on the other side, you've got Monsanto's defense. So they're taking a stance that's very similar as to what we've seen with cases in the US, and that's to really like focus on the reliability of scientific studies into glyphosate. So essentially, they're looking to attack that reliability of the studies which have been presented by the applicants and by Kelvin McNichol. Monsanto's defence is arguing that the applicants, if the applicants were able to prove that glyphosate-based herbicides might cause cancer, they would still not have proved that the compound was a carcinogen. So a big focus on that word that we've, they've used in the case, which is might cause cancer. In terms of what we've learnt from the past six weeks, because you've said this is week six of a nine-week trial, what have we heard so far? So essentially, this entire case is going to come down to the science behind glyphosate. So 
These first six weeks, we've heard from a range of witnesses, um, so researchers, scientists, medical professionals, toxicologists, and it's been it's been incredibly heavy in the detail. I mean, it's all I've been following it through live stream and just logging in every day. They've got a different scientific paper up on the screen, and they're zooming in on a specific graph and trying to understand how that one scientist came to that conclusion, how many people they would have used for that research, uh, uh, all the separate data points. It is just so incredibly detailed, and I don't know how this judge can follow this so well. It's it's just fascinating to see. I mean, we're asking things like what cancer is, what non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is, how could glyphosate go penetrate the skin and cause cancer? Like, we're getting into that nitty-gritty, which is just so, so interesting. And then we've moved into recent weeks into the possibility of it causing cancer and looking at cases in the US and what those outcomes were. And so it's just been fascinating to watch. And, you know, the the most recent expert that they called upon was Dr. William Sawyer. He's a toxicologist in the US and he was cross-examined on a wide range of topics. You know, we're looking at things like his previous experience where he served as a technical expert for cases in the US. And and does he believe glyphosate is a carcinogen, which he does? And so it it's led in recent days to this really interesting kind of re- revelation in the case where Monsanto's lawyers went really strong on, you know, trying to discredit him as an expert. And they even went as far as to try and throw his entire testimony out. And this led to a number of heated exchanges and one in which Dr. Sawyer, that toxicologist, claimed that Monsanto sabotages the publication of scientific studies and he believed that they went through his trash when he was being deposed for another case. So it's pretty wild stuff, Ali. Where to from here? Of course, uh, this week and another three weeks after that? Yeah, so we've been adjourned till the 19th of October. So they've just got some um, affidavits and technical documents to go through in the coming days just because we reached that kind of first part in the case where they're trying to determine if it's a carcinogen. And so we'll be looking at that uh, recommencing on the 19th for looking at, yes, another three or so weeks. Um, and then we'll be, we'll be waiting for a decision after that. That's Lucy Cooper speaking to Ali Felton-Taylor. Uh, she's been watching that court case about uh, glyphosate on Monsanto. Uh, but she's uh, just also repeating Mo- Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, is on the record as saying that Roundup, the chemical Roundup and glyphosate, is safe. It's uh, 28 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Shortly we'll uh, be heading off and look at uh, improving your soils. We've got a special feature we uh, we had our reporter Tim Fuchs head out to a special field day at Cavan last week, so uh, Cavan Station, so we'll hear more about that shortly. But before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Storey. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Um, geez, where to start? Do you want to go with the Busy voice? Busy news day. 
What's happening? Uh, obviously, in the fallout from the uh, voice referendum continues, the federal opposition uh, leader, Peter Dutton, uh, appears to have walked away from a commitment to hold a sef- second referendum on Indigenous recognition. Uh, he told Sky News last month he would hold a second referendum asking Australians to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution uh, if he won the next election. Uh, but he says today that he thinks uh, Australians are pretty pretty much over the referendum process for some time. Uh, and he will consult further on uh, the party's next steps. In Israel, on the Israeli front, the US President Joe Biden has given an interview to the US broadcaster CBS, and he says he's confident Israel is acting under the rules of law. This is after Israel hit Gaza with more airstrikes and cut food and fuel supplies. Uh, medics in Gaza are warning that thousands could die as uh, the hospitals uh, that are already packed are now running low on the petrol that's running the backup generators after the fuel was cut. Now, the federal government is urging Australians looking to leave Israel to take any opportunity to get on a flight. Uh, there's three charter flights carrying 250 Five Australians uh, headed for Dubai. Uh, they're looking to arrange a further flight today, uh, but the government's saying don't wait for those flights to come online. If you can get another commercial flight out to somewhere, uh, take that opportunity. Uh, closer to home, the former commando Heston Russell has been awarded uh, $390,000 in damages in a defamation case against the ABC. Uh, the federal court has rejected the ABC's public interest defence after the uh, ABC uh, ran allegations uh, by a former US Marine named Josh in two articles. Uh, He made accusations uh, against unidentified soldiers that had... um, uh, that an unarmed Afghan prisoner was executed in 2012 because there wasn't enough room in a helicopter. Uh, Mr Russell commanded the November platoon at the time and uh, he sued for defamation and the uh, Justice Lee has raised concerns the ABC equated any criticism of reporting as being part of a so-called culture war and pushed back reporting on allegations of war crimes. Uh, so they'll be the passing the hat around uh, this afternoon, <laughs> Michael, so dig deep. Uh, the federal government has announced an independent review of the uh, Australian Institute in Sport in Canberra. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, the review will look at institute facilities and consider the best location. There have been calls to move the AIS to Brisbane uh, ahead of the, uh, the 2023 Olympics. And South Africa will play England in these coming finals after uh, South Africa beat France 29-28 to in a thriller mm. uh, in the quarterfinal. Uh, so South Africa now play England after they uh, after England beat Fiji, uh, Fiji 30-24. to mm-hmm. That was apparently a good match too. Yeah. 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 It was a bit of a seesaw match, that one. But yeah, England got through. Yeah. All right, thanks for that. Plenty, of, plenty happening in the news. Oh, You'll, be busy. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be busy at one o'clock fitting all that in. <laughs> yeah, talk fast. <laughs> Good luck with that. Right. Doesn't always work. No. Uh, and Adam's story will be back at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. And Jake Phillips at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So um, in some parts, fairly warm at the moment, but there is a bit of a change on the way. Yeah, it's very varied across the state at the moment. Uh, up in the northeast, it's quite warm, or indeed hot, you might say. Temperatures well into the 30s, and that's where we've got some uh, extreme fire danger on the cards for this afternoon. And also, the rural fire service has issued a number of total fire ban districts up that way. And uh, by contrast, down down in the south, it's quite chilly, particularly down near the Victorian border. It's 
down around the zero mark up in the alpine areas at the moment and uh, only in the mid-teens around parts of uh, Riverina and Lower Western near the border. So highly varied across the state today and that's because we've got a cold front which is, still hasn't found its way across to the northeast but will do later today. So that'll bring cool, cooler weather right throughout the state by tomorrow. But not much rain. Not a lot. In the last 24 hours, we've seen a little bit over the southeast. And indeed, looking at the radar at the moment, still a little bit over the southeast. Currently, particularly around the areas of uh, Maruya, Batemans Bay, and inland up towards the ACT. But we're not expecting any high totals out of it. A few places have picked up in the order of 5 to 10 millimetres um, down in that part of the world. But once you get away from that southeast corner of the state, the, the falls are, are dropping off and, and a lot of places outside of that won't see anything at all from this system. And so looking further ahead, what can we expect? So the cool weather coming in with this change will be with us for a couple of days before we start up the heating cycle again, particularly from about Thursday, which is when we'll start to see winds develop uh, from the north. But in the meantime, we'll have a high pressure system move across the state. That's going to keep the atmosphere pretty stable. It will mean a couple of cool mornings on the way, so we're looking at some frosts tomorrow and Wednesday, more so tomorrow morning, about the ranges and also about parts of the southern and central inland where the temperature is going to get down close to, if not uh, at the zero mark, so a bit frosty. And then uh, conditions will warm up, as I mentioned, later in the week, so particularly by Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, as we head into the weekend, we'll be looking at some pretty hot conditions in a number of districts. Now, as far as rainfall is concerned, I mentioned those showers coming across with the change today. After those move out, we will be left with the odd coastal shower tomorrow and perhaps on Wednesday in the north. But aside from that, it's going to remain dry right through the coming week, um, at least till, till uh, early next week. And after that, we'll have to wait and see. But unfortunately, nothing of significant rainfall-wise on the horizon. Right, OK, which is uh, not what Dave in Trundle wants to see. So just letting you know, he's be texting in. No, look, I appreciate <laughs> that, Dave. I think we'd all like to see... And, all Mary, and, and the farmers <laughs> in Merriwar as well and uh, on the Liverpool Plains and uh, around yeah. Casino. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty dry in uh, many parts once, of the state at the moment. Once we learn to uh, control the weather in addition <laughs> to just forecasting it, things will be a lot better, won't they? <laughs> but we're still getting to that point, unfortunately. How's your AI working with that one? <laughs> Things a little way off. Yeah. <laughs> Still working on it. All Still right. working on that one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, thanks for that, Jake. Thanks, Michael. Jake Phillips at the bureau. There, it's uh, coming up to twenty-one minutes to one. Well, advocates of regenerative farming have gathered at a uh, well-known property near Yass to discuss ways farmers could improve their operations. The Soil Stewardship Summit was organised by the group Soils for Life and attracted dozens of producers from around the country discussing issues around soil health, carbon sequestration and rotational grazing. The ABC Central West Tim Fuchs went along to the event at Cavern Station just south of Yass and spoke to some of the people attending about their involvement. Ali Court is the CEO for Soils for Life. Ali, uh, tell us about the event here today. Yeah, so the Soil Stewardship Summit is a two-day event that we are running to bring together some of the uh, pioneers of regenerative agriculture in Australia uh, to do two things, really. Firstly, to look back over the last 10 years and, and earlier, really over decades, and celebrate what's been achieved, and a lot has been achieved. We've really moved from regenerative agriculture being on the fring fringes to very much in the mainstream awareness 
um, and soil has become recognised as a national priority. Um, so that's our first goal, is to look back and celebrate what's been achieved and share some of the insights from those pioneers from the last decade. The second goal for the event is to look ahead to the next 10 years because we know that ever-increasing numbers of farmers are interested in what they can do to improve the soil and improve landscape health. And uh, we also know that they need support to do that. And so we're coming together to think about what support they need and how we can help provide it. So what kind of support is available? Various different things across the country, uh, but I think it's fair to say that it's patchy and that uh, more, more support is needed. The kind of support that we think farmers really need is hearing from and connecting with other farmers who have done something like what they're thinking of doing and are willing to share. Because really, each farm is unique and the types of practices that will work to build soil and landscape health need to be unique to that context. And so hearing from someone who's in a similar context to you uh, and who's done something like what you want to do and is willing to share is really the best way, we think, to help those farmers who are wanting to build their soil and landscape health. The term regen ag is one that's always been a little bit on the nose with some farmers, but as you talk about the number of people who have embraced it, is the term regeneration still one that is appropriate? Yeah, I think the way I think about the term regenerative agriculture is that, like any other term, it's not so important what the words are, but it's more important how the words are used. Um, We like the term regeneration or regenerative because it describes the goal, which is to actually improve the health of the soil and landscape while growing food and fibre and continuing to have a profitable business. Um, But I think we can all get better at using that term in a way that makes everyone feel included and welcome. At Souls for Life, we really try to focus less on uh, how far down the road someone has gone and more on how we can help them keep going down the road. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Martin Royds joins me now. He's a farmer at Braidwood. Tell us about your experience uh, for the last 30 years of going down the regen ag path. Well, I started off doing the traditional spraying, grazing, uh, sowing and all those sort of things. And a friend of mine did the uh, accounting of uh, the cost of us putting in new pastures in and how long they lasted and then how long it took to get our money back. And he discovered that uh, we were our pastures were lasting five to seven years, but it was going to take 10 to 12 years to get our money back. So we realised that we were on a, a uh, not a very good trajectory. And, 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 you know, we've been seeing that since the 1950s where cost of production have been going up and the returns for farmers have been going down. So we've all had to get more efficient. And my path has been going down the regen path, which is basically getting to a stage where I don't have to sow new pastures. By using my cattle, I can manage my pasture and and, uh, improve it through grazing management. And then along the way, I've got into um, 
organics and using spray spraying out uh, biological stimulants that can encourage the soil to come to life and so then you get down the soil path and you realize that actually the soil is quite an important part uh, it's not something we just um, add things to it's if we encourage it uh, with the grazing management the, the cow poop a healthy cow poops fertilizing the soil we've introduced worms dung beetles uh, biodiverse composts and things like that and now we're doing the multi-species so we'll throw the seed out trample it in the ground with the cattle and get everything coming back tell me about the experience of starting off down this path 30 years ago i guess compared to where things are at now well you were considered a lunatic um yeah uh so yeah i for some reason that didn't seem to worry me too much uh but the, yeah, you you get to the stage now. Now people uh, look at you and think, "Oh yeah, have you have you heard about this new stuff, Regen Ag?" And we're like, "Oh yeah, I might have." In the beginning, there was a very small group of us, and we all oh, and we still all know each other very well. And it was exciting because we were just going, "Wow, if you do this, you get this result." And and the beauty is that you keep doing that. And um, every day you're going out into your paddocks looking at what you can do to improve things without killing. Um, Whereas before I was a contract sprayer, you know, my profession was killing. And if I didn't kill everything in a guy's paddock, he wasn't happy. Whereas now it's encouraging growth. And it's amazing when you start going down that path of um, encouraging growth and, and looking for what's doing well uh, even coming out here today I noticed on the side of the road that plum trees were growing really well in this area in our area the apple trees grow well so you know in tree plantings around the farm maybe plums here apples at home and has the work that you've been doing over the last 30 years has that allowed you as we're heading into uh, already we've seen a fair chunk of New South Wales put into drought category again um, how far I don't know whether how far ahead is the right term, but how, how well, well placed are you? When you do time control grazing, so I've got um, 34 paddocks, or most of the cattle are in one paddock. So you can look behind you and see if the paddocks are recovering, and they're not. And so you go, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And then you look ahead and you've got 20 paddocks and you go, right, I've got 20 days, or you know, if they're three days in each paddock, um, I've got 60 days. And then I've got to make some very hard decisions. But you know that in 60 days you're out of grass, so you can start planning now. And I'm next week I'm moving all the weaners. We're taking them out to another farm and doing things like that. So we, we, the, the beauty of time control grazing is getting a real feeling of where you're at at the moment uh, and how quickly the grass is recovering. Lovely. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. Matty Persehouse joins us, a uh, farmer from the Liverpool Plains. Uh, what brings you to the event today? I got invited, which was lovely to speak on a panel down here. I have a Soils for Life case study, and so that's uh, why I was invited to be here today. Okay. What are you doing on your property? So we trade and we breed beef cattle, and we use regenerative principles to improve our soil health on our farm. Where are you based on the plains, and what kind of soil are you dealing with there? We're at Blackville, New South Wales, so we're about an hour and a half southwest of Tamworth, and we are right on the edge of the Liverpool Plains, and so we are quite heavy black soils. Uh, we do have some red clays as well. 
And what are the challenges there? Uh, currently, um, it's very dry. So it's, 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 it's basically a trifecta at the moment in terms of uh, low, low cattle prices, high interest rates and very dry conditions. So uh, it's a very challenging season. And when did the idea come to run your property in the way that you do? I started reading Rachel Treasure's books, The Jillaroo and The Stockman and a few others uh, as I was growing up. Um, I didn't come from the country and so I, I, I grew up riding horses and, and started in agriculture, loved the land um, and started reading these books and they had regenerative themes and it really just started making me think outside the box and asking a lot of questions. I guess because I'm not um, a generational farmer, it really just was a lot easier for me um, yeah I guess to think outside the box and, and ask these questions um, yeah and, and question what we do on the farm and I guess made me open to looking at sort of different ideas. So you came in with fresh eyes? Yes yeah absolutely. Okay so one of the ideas that you're doing on your property is um, you've broken up the number of paddocks you have so you um, you've turned for example um, uh, maybe a large paddock or a few large paddocks into much smaller fenced off paddocks tell me the idea behind that and how it works yeah so we call it planned grazing Um, so we did a course called grazing for profit with RCS Um, and so that's basically taught us that if we split up our paddocks and we encourage rest um, it basically will allow you know rest and recovery in our grasses to um, to give them that break um, to get back up, uh, improve our soil health. We want to, you know, increase diversity in our paddocks so our animals sort of get like a salad bar. Um, so, you know, they, a bit like you eating tomatoes for a week, you know, you need other nutrients um, and vitamins and things in your diet. And so it's the same with the animals. Um, so we're basically trying to encourage rest in our paddocks Um yeah, to give, to give them the rest of the recovery. What have you noticed by using that kind of method? We've seen an improve in our soil health. Um, we also have been destocking quite a lot through, through this dry period. And so basically we want to match our stocking rate to our current capacity. So we want to make sure that, you know, as it gets drier, we have less animals um, because we have less grass. And so then we're not overgrazing our paddocks. By reducing our stock numbers... We, we then, when we come out of the, the dry period, um, we are leaving our, our soils and our pastures in better condition. And so when we actually get the rain, they perform a lot quicker and better than other people that may have taken it a lot lower. Um, when they need to germinate, um, they, need, you know, uh, they need a lot more rain and they need a lot more constant rain. Whereas if we still have a plant sitting in the ground and we have more carbon, so if we have more carbon, we will have a higher water holding capacity and so we can hold more water in our soil as well. And so we'll have more effective rainfall. Um, we'll have less runoff. Um, so basically by... by sequestering carbon we and having the healthy soil um it just puts us in a better position when it does rain again that we can take on animals faster and we will get better performance out of our grasses you've got people here who are on the same path as you um at various stages what do you hope comes out of an event like this and uh, you know are you expecting to be able to take much away back to the farm yeah absolutely it's really um inspiring to get a group of like-minded people together um i'm really the rookie of the group here so for me uh just to meet yeah to meet like-minded people and people that have been doing this for a lot longer than me um, i'm sure i'll take a lot home i'm really looking forward to the day mandy Persehouse from black creek uh, just on the edge of the liverpool plains thank you so much thank you very much
That's the ABC Central West's Tim Fuchs with that report from the Soil Stewardship Summit, uh, which was held at the Murdoch family-owned and run Cavern Station, which is a large property near Yass. It's time for markets. First up, let's go to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers rolled back to 16,000 lambs and just 4,600 sheep. The lamb market had the most spark we have seen here at Bendigo for a while, with buyers showing a bit more urgency for a few numbers. Most lambs 5 to $10 dearer, with some trades up to $15 better. Heaviest sucker lambs up around 31 kilos carcass weight, topped at $165, but there was just three pens over 160 and only another dozen pens over $150 as there wasn't a lot of weight in the yarding. In fact, most suckers didn't handle that well at all and were showing signs of having gone off. The heavy 26 to 30 kilo young lambs, 136 to 158 to average $148. The heavy trades, 24 to 26 kilos, 138 to 148. And the 22 to 24 kilos, 110 to 138 to average $127. These runs of lambs averaging between 5.20 to 5.50 cents a kilo carcass weight. Light lambs under 20 kilos received more processing support at 60 to 100 dollars, with some restockers pushed out. Only a few lots of small lambs sold under 40 dollars a head today. But the sheep job went back to being cheaper again at 5 to 40 dollars over the majority of the ewes or 50 cents to 120 cents a kilo carcass weight. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Let's go to Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Agents pen just shy of 15,000 sheep and lambs with 5,900 new season lambs on offer. The quality was good with additional buyers present, both domestic and export. This week, the tempo lifted with prices 5 to $13 stronger. New season heavy trade lambs gained 4 to t- Four dollars, one hundred and twelve to one hundred and forty-four. Heavy lambs were unchanged, one hundred and thirty-eight to one hundred and fifty-six. New season light lambs, the processor were ten dollars stronger, fifty-seven to ninety-three dollars. Lambs suitable to turn out sold from twenty dollars to sixty dollars, with very light merinos to the restocker selling for five to forty-eight dollars. Heavy and extra heavy old lambs gained nine to. $10, selling from 124 to 170 Mutton was softer, the heavy end up to $20. Heavy crossbred use sold from $30 to $34. Heavy merino use, $24 to $58. And medium sheep eased $5, selling from $28 to $38. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Two Dubbo sheep and lambs. Numbers were backed by 5,300 free yarding and 13,300 lambs. It was a fair quality yarding with some good heavyweight new season lambs and old lambs, along with a pretty good selection of trade weights. There were also good numbers of merino lambs and hogger charted. Trade weight new season lambs were 4 to $6 dearer, selling from 58 to 118 to average between 4.30 and 4.70 cents. Trade weight old lambs were 8 to 15 dearer, with the 20 to 24 kilogram lambs selling from 82 to 118. Heavyweight lambs were four dearer with the old lambs weighing 24 to 30 kilograms, selling from 115 to 135, while the old lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 136 to 160. New season lambs over 24 kilograms sold from 118 to 138 to average 485 cents. Merino lambs were three dearer with trade weights, selling from 43 to 85. Restocker lambs were five dearer with the new season lambs selling from 16 to 85. Hobbits were around firm, selling to $80. We have the balance of the lambs and 9,500 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Wagga cattle. 
Good afternoon. Numbers were similar with 3,725 yarded. Quality was quite good with a lot of well-finished cattle in the offering. The usual buying group made it to the sale with a few more orders in place this week. The market threw out mixed trends. However, feeder cattle did attract stronger bidding, lifting prices over some categories. Veal sold 20 to 40 cents cheaper, 150 to 230. Wiener steers back to the paddock, 200 to 280 kilo, were up 10 cents, 120 to 245. Trade steers were back 10, 155 to 240. Feeder steers, medium weight, they gained 11 cents, 164 to 239. Feeder heifers, medium weight, held firm, 145 to 201. The lighter weights were back 10, 120 to 175. Bullocks and heavy steers were back 10 to 14 cents, 172 to 225. Heavy cows held their form, 158 to 186. And the middle run also firm, 136 to 162. I'm Leanne for MLA. The Forbes cattle. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 1,530 head. Quality was fair with an excellent penning of well-finished cattle available along with those more suited to feed. The usual buyers are present and competing in a firm to cheaper market. Veal steers and heifers to restockers sold from 140 to 242 cents a kilo. Middleweight yearling steers to processors held firm from 180 to 230, while heavyweight slipped 8 to 10 cents to receive from 192 to 210. Those to feed were back 10 cents with prices ranging from 181 to 211. The heifer portion continues to slip with feeders paying from 145 to 175, those to processors ranging in price from 155 to 200. Heavy steers and bullocks sold from 145 to 210, grown heifers receiving from 126 to 190 cents, and a quality yarding of cows saw prices hold firm to 5 cents dearer. Heavy two score 126 to 156, three and four score receiving 144 to 178. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And Tamworth cattle. Good afternoon. 1,775 cattle penned. A sign of the time saw increased supplies of vealers, yearlings well supplied and some very good cows. Overall quality and condition was mixed. The usual buyers attended. Varying trends through the young cattle. Trends generally cheaper on the lighter weights and plainer conditioned cattle. Significantly so in places. Vealer steers to restockers 126 to 216 cents. The heifers 120 to 137. Light and medium weight yearlings steers 104 to 222. Heavy Feeders up to 12 cents cheaper, 146 to 230. Well finished trade steers were dearer, 225 to 230 cents. The heavyweights, the heifers also dearer, 198 to 206. Cheaper trends, the light and medium weight yielding heifers with a quality improvement, 118 to 221 cents. Cheaper trends, the heavy grind steers to process, 168 to 212. Well finished grind heifers a shade dearer. The cow market was a little dearer with medium weight two and three scores, 115 to 158. The heavy three and four. Schools 120 to 178 cents a kilo. James Armitage from MLA in Tamworth. And you've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour, and it's coming up to news time at one o'clock.